in, uh, on page 639 in a pew Bible, if you're using a pew Bible. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, page 639. Proverbs 15, 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. You know, Mark Twain always seems to say it just right. Mark Twain said, All of us are like the moon. We all have a dark side that we don't want anyone else to see. It's really true. You know, you think about the moon, we only see one side of it. And the reason, of course, is because the moon rotates on its axis uh, in the same amount of time as it takes to orbit the earth once so that the two are synchronized. So if uh, this is the earth, and let's say I was the moon, and this is the side that's facing the earth, as I'm orbiting, I'm beginning my rotation, and so that no matter where I am in the orbit around the earth, there's always one side that's facing. So by the time the moon gets halfway around the earth, it has rotated halfway, but it's also gone halfway, so it's still seeing the same side. And I think, you know, what a perfect analogy for how we are. There's the world out there, and we want to present a certain face to the world, a certain appearance of ourselves. And so we constantly are sort of rotating ourselves to make sure people see the right side of us. You know, the successful side, the, the have-it-all-together side, the I've-got-all-the-answers side, you know, the I'm-fine side of us that we present uh, to the world. Uh, and, and so you know, even in the church... Um, it's people say, you know, how are you doing? God, how are you doing? God, 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 God. <laughs> How's family? Great. How's wife? Great. How's life? Great. But, you know, if we're really honest and we're to say, actually, it's not all good. There's actually this, you know, in reality, my marriage is really, it's kind of dead. It's really hurting. Or I'm very worried about one of my children or, you know, I'm extremely lonely or whatever the case may be. You know, a high school student comes home and, and the parents like, how you doing? Good. How was school day? Fine. What happened? Nothing. Did you learn anything? No. And you go, okay. And they wander off. But what you didn't tell your mom and dad is you're actually really depressed and you're thinking about suicide. But we don't talk about that because that's the side that we don't even show sometimes our own family, the people who know us. And I think it's really a challenge for us here, especially in this, this area of the country. It's very... Uh, it, it tends to be upwardly mobile, and I know not every one of us is in that place, but that's just kind of the ethos in which we live. And so there's really an emphasis on having it together, succeeding, everything being good, and, and we push ourselves that way. We, we don't know what to do with people who aren't okay. Uh, we, we don't know how to handle that, really. And, and so, you know, in business, you're always putting your best foot forward. You don't go into a job interview and say, hey, actually, I've got some real problems I need to share with you. You know, oh, no, I can do it. It's great, you know, gung-ho. And so that's a challenge, and we bring that into the church. Um, we, don't, we don't open up our hearts and our lives to one another. There's a side that we show to the world and a side that we keep to ourselves. And so the church, in, in different degrees, can have the same kind of superficiality, and we all, I think, struggle with that. That's why when people say, I don't like the church, it's full of hypocrites, I'm always like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And guess what? Every place is full of hypocrites. Every mosque is full of hypocrites, and every Buddhist temple is full of hypocrites, and every bar is full of hypocrites, and every, you know, it's, we're all hypocrites. We all have parts of ourselves that deny the outward projection of who we are. Um, 
And not just our hurts and our struggles and our failures, but our, our sins as well. That's part of the dark side. That we all, in many ways, uh, violate God's laws, both in word, in thought, and in deed, in every way. And we become quite proficient then at moving and adjusting our rotation so that people don't see that side of us. But I'll tell you what, no matter how good we are at it, no matter how well we are at cloaking the real challenges we're facing, God sees it all. And we can't hide anything from Him. As it says in Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. God sees everything. And even what I don't even want to look at it myself, God sees. He sees it all. His eyes are everywhere. So today we're talking about God's omniscience. Um, you know, the last several Sundays we've been looking at different aspects of God's character. We have this command, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we've read in Proverbs. And so we've looked at what it means to fear God and reverence Him because He's holy. Or last Sunday we looked at reverencing Him because He's a sovereign over all things. Well, today we want to look at reverencing God because He is omniscient. And I guess the simplest definition of omniscience I could give you is, omniscience means God knows everything. Is it the best? He knows everything. And everything includes everything. <laughs> I mean, all possible things. But here in Proverbs 15.3, we don't have an abstracted philosophical uh, definition. What we have is a wonderfully concrete, poetic description of what omniscience entails. Because he says in verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. They're watching. You know, it reminded me this summer I went to England for the first time. My wife and I had our 15th anniversary and... Um, you're driving along there, trying not to die on the other side of the road. And, and, you know, there's always weird traffic signs in other countries. You go to other countries, you're like, what does that sign mean or whatever? And we're going along, and there are these signs of cameras. We'd be like, sweet, scenic overlook, you know? So we're tourists, we're like looking for the scenic overlook. Then there's another camera, we're looking for it, no scenic overlook. And we eventually found out later, those are traffic cameras. They're taking pictures of your license plate if you're speeding. Boy, I'll tell you, that'll take the, the Boston driving right out of you real fast. I, uh, so, and then, you know, London, of course, as you know, is blanketed with cameras so that there's people watching. So if crimes occur, they can you know, track where the criminal went from place to place. And, and I was thinking of that. You know, it, it's very different when you think of God seeing everything, that he sees everything that's going on. Um, God sees us here in this place right now. He sees all the way through our, our hearts into the deepest parts of us. God sees what's happening right down in the nursery right now. He knows every child and everything that's taking place, even though we can't see it. God knows what's happening in every church on the South Shore of Boston. He knows where every person is. Uh, God knows whether or not the Red Sox are going to clinch it tonight. You know, uh, He knows already. God knows. God is aware of what's happening in Iceland and Cambodia and Argentina all at the same time. God knows the location of every insect in the Amazon rainforest. And he could also tell you where the deepest deep sea creature in the deepest crevice of the ocean is right now. God knows this whole planet. He knows everything that's here. He knows what's happening on Mars. He knows where uh, you know every cloud is swirling on Jupiter. And even the far-off galaxies where we look through the Hubble Space Telescope and scientists go, oh, we thought that was just a star. Actually, it's a galaxy cluster. Wow, it's billions and hundreds and hundreds of billions of stars. And God knows everyone there. He knows all of those things. 
God knows of every angel who praises His name and He knows of every devil that opposes His purposes. He, he knows all things. He comprehends them. And not only does He know them, but I, I think another thing we could say, if we want to take the definition of God's omniscience a little step further, He knows them accurately. He knows them as they truly are. In other words, what God perceives is what reality actually is. And this is one of the challenges we have as human beings in our knowledge is that we're terribly limited by our perspective. We suffer from perspectivism. Uh, we, we see things, you know, like the, the cameras in London, you could say, yeah, they see everything. Well, actually, they don't. They see everything from a particular angle. But there's lots of angles from which to view things. But we're so narrow in our perspective. And this is a huge problem in philosophical circles today uh, in the academy trying to think through how can people really know anything? Because we're all so um, uh, in, sort of encrypted, you know, in, in, our, in our perspectivism. We can't see things as they really are. We just see what we want to see. And as a result, there's kind of this hopelessness about can people really know anything? I don't know. God can know something, though. God knows everything. He knows it accurately. He's not limited by any perspective. His eyes are everywhere. He sees every dimension of a situation. Not only that, but I think we could also say that God knows everything consciously. Notice that his, you know, this image again of his eyes are being opened everywhere. So in other words, whatever God knows, he's fully aware of it at all times. Like You know a lot of things, and I know a lot of things, but the majority of it is not conscious to us at any one moment. So if I said to you, okay, what's your social security number? You would go, oh, uh, blah, 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 blah. Then you could retrieve it. God doesn't retrieve anything. It, nothing's stored in a database that he has to pull up. It's not like we have to go on the internet to Wikipedia and, and figure out the information and, and retrieve it. He has it conscious to himself at all times. His eyes are everywhere. He sees it actively at any moment, which is an amazing thought. What kind of mind must God have to know all things with 100% accuracy, consciously, all the time, everywhere. What an awesome God. It should cause us to revere Him and just and, and bow before Him. This is why Matthew, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 10, He said, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And this is why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.13 4, says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And the Apostle John in his first epistle, uh, chapter 3, verse 20, says, For God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. He knows everything. When I think of uh, the texts in the Bible though, that speak of God's omniscience, the one that always jumps out at me is Psalm 139. Just such a wonderful psalm. In fact, let's look there real quick. Would you take a pencil or something, put a bookmark in Proverbs, we're going to come right back to it, and turn back one book of the Bible to Psalms, Psalm 139. This is a a psalm that really talks about all of God's omnis, His omniscience, His omnipresence, His omnipotence. But just focusing on His omniscience this morning. Psalm 139. Verse 1, O Lord, You have searched me and You know me. God knows us. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. God is an expert on you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Before a word is on my tongue, You know it completely, O Lord. 
So God even knows the future of me. He even knows what I'm going to say and what I'm going to do before I do it. It's not just a present awareness, but it's also a knowledge of all possible and actual future things that will take place. It's a comprehensive knowledge. This knowing of the future again shows up in verse 16. He says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows our lives. He knows the day of our birth. He knows the day of our death. It's all, he has it written down. He knows us completely. Now, I, I, just, I was sharing this with the first service, but I think you should be aware. You know, there, there is um, a school of thought in American evangelicalism that denies the full omniscience of God in the sense I'm talking about here. Uh, it's, it's a school of thought that's sometimes called open theism. Or, uh, yeah, you know, just this idea that God's, that the future is open. And the basic idea of open theism is essentially that God does not and cannot know the future actions of free individuals. And so the idea is to safeguard the freedom of God and to safeguard the, uh, rather the freedom of human beings to such an extent that we would deny that God can see their future actions because if God knows what you're going to do tomorrow, then in some sense it must be determined. And so there's this whole sort of school of thought that says we have to protect the absolute freedom of man at all costs. And so we're going to deny God's foreknowledge of man's future actions. And, you know, maybe you've uh, heard this. If, if you ever read a book, Letters uh, from a Skeptic, is kind of a popular book that popularized this. Um, writers like Clark Pinnock and John Sanders and uh, Gregory Boyd. And so, you know, I just kind of throw it out there. I mean, I don't have time to really go into a lot of it, but just to kind of make you aware, you know, sort of inoculate you as a congregation against this, you know, contaminant that, that is floating around some evangelical thought. It, it really is out there. You know, the problem with this idea that God doesn't know what we're going to do in the future, well, the biggest problem is the Bible. Because it seems to be everywhere in the Bible it's assumed that God knows even what we're going to do in the future. Like Psalm 139, He knows the words on our tongue before they happen. I don't know how you would have prophecy in the Bible if God didn't know the future. I mean, the Bible's full of prophetic words from the Old Testament and the New Testament. But these prophecies involve people and their actions and their choices. And, and you say, well, that's complex then. I mean, how is it then that God is sovereign and knows all those things and how can we be free? And, you know, I would just say last week's sermon. <laughs> we don't know. What we know is that God is sovereign and we know that we're responsible and somehow those fit together, but God never tells us how they fit. They just are both laid out in Scripture. So it's a great mystery how God does this. But God knows the future. Now notice at the end of Psalm 139, this is the so what. What does it mean that God knows all things? What should that uh, do in terms of our everyday lives? And the application from omniscience that uh, David draws forth as he looks at this theme is that God, therefore, since you know all things, search my heart. So it's not just an abstraction out there. It's saying, God, search me. So it says in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O oh God. Test me. That's the prayer of the person who's come to grips with God's omniscience. Is wow, God sees right through me. He's like an MRI. He sees my very soul. He knows whatever's, everything that's inside of me. So God, rather than trying to hide from you and pretend that you can't see some side of me, I'm just going to say, God, Look in my life. What is there in me that is displeasing to you? You know what it is. Show me what it is so that I can be holy and blameless in your sight. 
And that, friends, is the angle that the Proverbs take on omniscience. So if you turn back now to Proverbs uh, chapter 15. When we look at the theme of omniscience in the Proverbs, that's the angle. That God searches our hearts. It's not an abstracted kind of thing. It's, it's very much concrete and personal and in our faces. So look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2. It says, All of a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Or look at Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2. It says, All of a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. We can put forward whatever projection we want, but God sees the dark side. He sees our hearts. He knows exactly what's going on inside of us and the things that no one else sees when we're alone. God sees it all. He is the sovereign Lord who sees all things. Notice something else in verse 2, 21-2. I didn't notice this at first, but it took me, as I looked at it more, it kind of jumped out at me eventually. I'm kind of slow, but you know, I finally saw this. So it says in Proverbs 21-2, All of a man's ways seem right to him. Now, who's the him? What's the antecedent to the pronoun? It's, it's the man, isn't it? So you could translate this, maybe even be a little more clear. All of a man's seem right, ways seem right to himself. And when I thought about that, I was like, wait a minute. So that it means not only am I skilled at presenting the face that I want you to see, but I even eventually convince myself that the face I'm presenting to you is the real face. <laughs> so my sinful depravity is so twisted that not only do I sin against God in thought, word, and deed, and then not only do I hide it, but I'm, I then convince myself that I'm really not that bad and it's really okay and it's not back there. It's like, wow. You know, it's like a dog that steals food from the kitchen and then buries it in the yard and then kind of forgets that he buried it and actually convinces himself that he's a good dog because, well, I, I don't really remember burying it or I'm not thinking about burying it at this very moment so I must not have done it, so I must be a good dog. It's like, wow, it's really... It's, I, you know, I thought about that more. It's not that a man's ways seem right to everyone else. A man, all a man's ways seem right to him. But the Lord sees the heart. Uh, probably the best biblical example of this... Uh, is the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know, you ever want to think about the doctrine of sin and understand it, you go back to Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden. That's the archetypal example of sin. So here you have Adam and Eve. They break God's law. They eat from the forbidden tree. And then they hide it. They put it behind them on the dark side and they cover themselves with fig leaves and they hide in the bushes or whatever. Finally, God gets them out and, and he challenges them. He says, Adam, what you do? And what does Adam say? Does he say, well, you're right, Lord. Here's the dark side. I'm going to... He's like, well, it's this woman you put here with me. <laughs> so he says, uh, Eve. And she says, well, the serpent. You know. And that's, that's the nature of sin, is that we deny it in ourselves and we always find a way to say, well, really, I'm not that bad. I'm righteous in my own eyes. It's because of this or it's because of that person. And it's everything else besides us. Um, and that's just the nature of who we are. So that uh, we need God to test our hearts because sometimes we don't even know our hearts. I think most of the time. You know, it says in uh, the Old Testament that the heart is deceitfully wicked. And our hearts are wicked. They, we trick ourselves without even knowing we're tricking ourselves. You know, a great modern example of this, I think of some examples today. Uh, a great modern example of this is the whole area of addiction. 
You know, if, if you've ever had maybe someone in your family who's uh, had addiction, alcoholism, or drug addiction, or gambling, or pornography, or whatever, it's all the different things people can fall into sort of habitualized sins. If you've ever dealt with that, you know that's the hardest thing in dealing with addiction is getting to the bottom of the truth. Because uh, addicts have an ability, almost a superhuman ability, to look you in the eye, figure out what it is you want to hear, and then say it in a way that you can hear it so that you believe them. And then they may go to this person over here and say something different, but it's an, an ability that, that you have, that you have to have to be able to keep up an addiction. As it's been said, it really is a disease of denial. That's part of it. And that's why the first step, you know, in the 12-step programs is admit you have a problem. And it sounds kind of, you know, kind of corny and kind of cliched, but when, when that's going on in your life, it's not corny and cliched. It's like, the first step is to say, okay, there actually is a dark side and stop lying to everyone and stop lying to yourself. And you know, when, when you live a whole life of lying to others, you start believing yourself when you're lying. It's an amazing thing. You start convincing yourself it's true just because it's coming out of your mouth. And so all of a man's ways seem right to him. Even to the addict, they seem right. But God weighs the heart. You know, there's another, I think, another modern example besides addiction where there's this problem of sinning and then hiding it and then convincing ourselves that we're really right. You know, addiction is bad, but there's something even worse, something even more challenging than addiction. It's religion. Religion is a big problem. Because in religion, we do religious things that we can then focus on and say, okay, I'm doing this, this, and this, so I guess it's all okay. And we don't really allow God to look into our hearts. And we're convinced we're on God's side because, well, we do do this, this, and the other thing. Um, you know, Jesus wrestled with us all the time. He always had this big fights with all the religious people. All the, all the dirty sinners love Jesus. It's all the righteous religious people. That, you know, he drove crazy. And it's because of this. Because he talked about the dark side that everyone wanted to deny. And the sin, you know, the prostitutes and things, they're ready to face it. They're like, yep. That's me. But all the religious people weren't ready to face that because it would have broken down their religious structure and safety net. So for instance, uh, put a bookmark here again, sorry, and, and let's turn over to Luke chapter 6. I'm sorry, I'm still in Luke. I know you've moved on to Proverbs. I'm still in Luke. Uh, Luke chapter uh, 6, verse 6, it's on page 1020. It's a story just illustrating the self-deceptive power of our hearts, the way we're able to filter out anything that would challenge our uh, false image of ourself. Luke chapter 6, verse 6, page 1020. It says, On another Sabbath, so here we're on the Sabbath. Remember in the Old Testament, uh, Sabbath day, you're not allowed to do any work. It says, On another Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled, which, of course, in an agrarian culture like that would have meant poverty and a very difficult time uh, living. So verse 7, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Is he going to work on the Sabbath? Because that's the rule. He can't work. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life 
or to destroy it. He looked around at all of them and then said to the men, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So they have a religious ritual or law that they have nailed. They are the experts on Sabbath keeping. And should, you know, were they supposed to keep the Sabbath? Yeah, that's God's law. Of course, they elaborated upon it and they developed a whole body of literature about how you were supposed to obey the Sabbath and they turned it into this extremely tight, legalistic, bureaucratic kind of maze that was difficult to get right. They were the only ones who could do it. Uh, and they, they held everyone accountable to it. But while they're focusing on this one religious thing that they have right, this outward thing, they're ignoring all the stuff on the other side. Like their anger. Like their hatred. Like their scheming hearts that want to catch a man. They're ignoring their complete lack of compassion for a man with, who was born with a physical handicap. Totally ignoring that. Instead of rejoicing and being like, isn't this awesome that God would do this to help a person? That God is performing miracles in our midst. They're, you know, is He going to heal on the Sabbath? And they're totally missing it. And so they're completely blind to the darkness in their hearts and the violence and the scheming and the plotting that is so far removed from where God's heart is at. And I think the same thing happens today. We have religious things that we do. We all have rituals. Uh, and they, they look different in different churches and things. You know, in our church, uh, Bible reading's a very big uh, thing. And that's good. We should read our Bibles. Uh, in fact, we probably don't read enough. I'd say read more. Uh, I've, I've challenged you uh, to read Proverbs, whatever day of the week it is. If it's the, the 21st of the month, if it's the 21st, read chapter 21 today. If it's uh, the 28th, read Proverbs chapter 28 today. Just, you know, read a chapter of Proverbs a day. I encourage Bible reading. But isn't it so easy when you start reading your Bible? Just to get smug about it. <laughs> you know, it's like you're on the, the commuter rail riding into Boston or you're going in on the commuter boat or whatever, so you whip out the Bible and you're like, you know, and you're like, huh, I wonder if anyone else sees me reading my Bible. I bet I'm the only one here on the red line reading my Bible. <laughs> yeah. Probably the only one here really went to church and got something out of it, you know. I, you know, looking around, no, no, this is the newspaper, newspaper, no Bibles. I guess I'm the only Bible here. You know, I just I guess somehow it's good to read your Bible, but it's the problem isn't Bible reading. The problem is Jeremy's heart and your heart, and we just twist it around. Or serving on a committee, or teaching Sunday school, or teaching a Bible study, or changing diapers in the nursery, or giving a large gift of, of uh, money to the church or to some other organization. It's just so easy to like just go, huh, huh, that's one for me. I mean, God, God, right, no, you know, and... We get so caught up in ourselves. And at the same time, while I'm focusing on, well, I read my Bible, or I did this, or I did that, we compl- I completely ignore the other things in my heart. You know, the, the destructive, critical spirit. It's always tearing people down and tearing everything apart. The harshness that I have inside of me. Or the anger, or the jealousy toward everyone around me. Or the greed or the uncontrolled lust, or the unforgiveness in my heart toward people who've really hurt me, that I just keep holding on to that. Um, or, you know, my pride, or, you know, you fill in the blank. And all of those things that are really destructive to relationships and really destructive to people, and I ignore all that because, you know, well, I did read Proverbs once this week, and, 
And so that's religion. But praise God that he sees it all. That the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. Or it says again back in Proverbs 21.2, All the man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. God sees through our religion. And he sees where our hearts are really at. Are they really in Christ? Or is our hope in our religion or our good deeds or whatever it is? <clears throat> and not only does God know it, but this is the other theme in Proverbs. God will reveal it. It's not just sort of a data point that God says, okay, I know what's in Jeremy's heart. But he's a God of holiness and righteousness who will reveal all these things someday. Look at Proverbs 17.3. Proverbs 17.3 The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. So here we're talking about smelting. I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about smelting. Maybe you do, but uh, you know, and smelting is when you superheat a metal, like silver or gold, in order to remove the pure metal from the impurities that are part of it. And so as, as it gets under more and more heat, it the two things separate and the one kind of drops away and you have the pure metal. So we're talking about the smelting process here. And essentially what, what it's saying is that God smelts our heart. Not only does He know what's inside each of us, but He will eventually reveal that. Uh, you know, there's going to be a day when we stand before God. And it's all revealed. It's all in the open. You know, God's uh, going to show to the whole world who we truly are. Isn't it interesting that whenever the judgment day is talked about in the Bible, so often the imagery is the imagery of fire. It's a day of burning. And so all the stuff that we paper over our lives with just gets consumed. Whew! And if what the, the side I'm projecting to the world and to God is my money or my success or my religiosity or the fact that, you know, I, I did a walk for... Uh, you know, cancer, I did... And those are good things. I hope you do those. But if that's my righteousness and that's what I present, those things get consumed. And is there real gold of faith in Christ? Is there the real silver of salvation in Christ? Or is it all just, you know, uh, things that we do to pride ourselves in ourselves? But on the day of judgment, all that stuff is just going to get consumed like tissue paper in front of a, a furnace. It'll be gone. And then we'll be exposed. We'll see if there's really anything of eternal value in our hearts. And so as Jonathan Edwards said, we truly are sinners in the hands of an angry God. He is a holy God. His burning vision sees right through us. We cannot hide ourselves from Him. He sees our sin with 2020 clarity. He sees the, the tumors in our soul through His MRI kind of vision. And we are naked before God. We're completely exposed before Him. He sees our good side and our bad side and the other sides we didn't even know we had. God sees our sin in all of its grotesque, lurid vividness with 100% accuracy. And He knows it all. Even before I was born, He knew all of it. He sees the sin and corruption of the world in every graphic detail, in every molecule of our wickedness. He sees it all. And yet, <laughs> this is the amazing thing, even though He before time saw 
the way I would lead a life away from Him, though He saw all of my depravity, He still sent His Son to die for me. What an awesome God! And even though He knew once I became a Christian, what a lousy disciple I would be. And He knew the ways I would fail as a Christian father, and the ways I would fail as a Christian husband, and all the ways I would be, you know, a substandard pastor. He still sent Jesus to die for me. And even though He knows when I walk out of here today what it is I may do to just totally dishonor His name or think or the attitudes I may have, and still He sent Jesus to die for me. What an awesome, awesome Savior. Brothers and sisters, there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. And that's what we have. And so I would just encourage you to joyously throw off your self-righteousness. To take all of the garbs of things you would use to justify yourself and just toss that off. It's going to burn anyway. You don't want to be wearing it. And just throw it off. And let yourself be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. Let the righteousness and forgiveness of God be that which makes you pure before God. Not anything you have, but what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Is your confidence this morning in Christ or in yourself? There's just two choices. Is it what God has done for you or what you can do for yourself? And may we as a church, as we enter into a new life as Christians, of learning what it means to live in the righteousness of Christ and not our own, and as we're open before God, may we as a church start the journey of what it means to live openly with one another. I think that's the hard thing of Christian life in the church. How do we share our lives with one another and begin to kind of, you know, let people see a little bit, you know, just a little bit. And really and share our burdens and, and get rid of the, you know, we're perfect, we're together, we're successful, I'm a great Christian, I never struggle. And say, so, you know, I've been a Christian for 20 years, man, and I know I shouldn't be struggling with X, but I do. Pray for me. And, and let some of that shame go and just be open with one another in Christ. Because here, here, here we are, the communion table. I mean, this is what Christ did for us. He's opened the way to total access to the Father. And He's opened the way to total access to one another. This bread is a, a symbol of Christ's body which was broken for us. And this cup that we drink is a symbol of Jesus' blood that was shed for us. And so our hope is in Christ. We feed upon Christ. We're nourished by Christ. Jesus is the host at this table. This table is open to anybody here who has Jesus. And I don't care what your denomination is. If you know Christ in the way I've talked about where He is your salvation, then you're welcome to eat here at this table. If not, I would just encourage you to sort of let the elements pass by. And, and the reason I say that is because by eating these elements, what we're saying publicly is that we uh, trust in Christ alone for our hope and our righteousness before God. So I ask the elders to join me here at the communion.